0: Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast that looks to go deeper into Asia's biggest stories.
1: I'm Andrew People. And I'm Vincent Ni. The coronavirus and its aftermath have stirred up plenty of tensions as governments around the world seek to apportion responsibility of the outbreak. Now, much criticism has been centred on China, where the virus was first reported late last year.
0: Yes, and one highly unfortunate side effect of this global blame game has been a rise in anti-Asian sentiment around the world, particularly in the United States. Asians in America have in recent weeks faced verbal abuse, spitting, and even physical assault solely based on their race.
1: Yes, and so in this week's episode, we are going to discuss the re-emergence of anti-Asian phenomenon during this global pandemic, in particular in the US, which has, of course, come at a time when racial tensions have been on top of the news agenda thanks to the Black Lives Matter movement. Later in the episode, we are going to speak to Jennifer Pan, who is a political scientist at Stanford University. She recently did some really interesting study into the political implications of anti-Asian racism in the U.S. universities. But first, let's put things into context and understand a bit of history of this hugely important and yet slightly underreported topic today with Cristiano, who is a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii in Manoa, She is also the president of the Association for Asian Studies. Thanks so much for joining us, Christine.
2: Well, I really appreciate this opportunity because it is such an important matter and it goes beyond the United States.
1: Absolutely. But, you know, we are going to focus on the U.S. today. But just to clarify, Christine, when we talk about Asian Americans in the U.S. context, who are we referring to
2: exactly? Well, of course, Asian Americans includes broadly East Asians, Southeast Asians, and South Asians. But as far as these kinds of anti-Asian racist attacks, I think primarily it's East Asians, but it extends Mm. to a certain extent to Southeast Asians as well. But East Asians, certainly the target.
1: Right. Now we say there's a rising anti-Asian sentiment or anti-Asian racism, however you call it. What evidence do we have?
2: Well, at the start of this, I mean, and when I say this, I mean some Mm. of the reactions to the pandemic. Russell Jung, who is a professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University, created a website to try to track some of this, because otherwise it was everything was anecdotal. And yeah. his website is called Stop AAPI Hate, Asian American Pacific Islander Hate. To his surprise, his website, first in English and then in other Asian languages, was flooded with reportages in its first week, and this is in mid-March. There were over 650 reported incidents, and that is only increased. So after eight weeks, there were something like over 1,800 incidents. And it goes on and on as the pandemic goes on. And as President Trump continues to add fuel to the fire with calling something Kung Flu or something like that. COVID. To be specific, COVID-19. That name gets further
0: and further away from China as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. It's, by the way, it's a disease without
1: question. has more names than any disease in history. I can name Kung Flu. I can name... Nineteen different versions of names.
2: So Trump's racist malapropisms do not help at all.
1: Just to understand a bit of the context of this website, what kind of attacks, what form of attacks are we talking about? Is it verbal attack or physical attacks? You know, what kind of incidents are these people reporting on the website?
2: There is verbal harassment, of course. There's shunning, civil rights violations, some physical assaults, and other kinds of macroaggressions, overt aggressions, etc. And I think it's important to keep in mind the reportage itself, which is always a bit problematic. So the reportage is not exactly what happens. So it's those people who have chosen to come forward and report.
1: But is there any like, you know, official statistics, for example here in the UK, the Home Secretary came out to warn against anti Asian racism, et cetera, since the pandemic started. Is there any official statistics being released in the United States?
2: I'm not sure, other than this website. I mean, and Jung has gotten percentages. So if you look at his percentages, about 70% are verbal harassment. And shunning is over 20%. Civil rights violations, about 5%, etc.
1: Now, you mentioned President Trump. You know, political leaders often play an important role in shaping the behavior of a society. And in the U.S., you know, during this pandemic... We've heard him talking about China virus, the Wuhan virus, and the Kung flu, as you just mentioned. What impact has that had on public opinion and attitudes toward Asian Americans in the U.S.? How do we measure
3: this?
2: (laughs) You know, I guess in some ways it might be rather difficult to measure, to quantify the influence. But when the leader of your country uses these terms, it has to have some kind of impact. Granted, not all of America is in step with President Trump. But his use of these labels becomes part of the conceptualization of the pandemic itself, especially amongst his followers. So I think the point here is that labels are extremely important, especially when they're coming from the top. And they can be really difficult to shake, even if new scientific evidence reports this, this, this. There are other incidences around the world. We can see some of the direct results of this kind of anti-Chinese rhetoric.
0: That's absolutely Fascinating. And it's awful to hear about this rise in anti-Asian sentiment that's been going on, Christine. I wanted to understand some of the broader historical background here, though. I mean, this obviously isn't the first time in the US or elsewhere in the world that we've seen anti-Asian racism on the rise. In the US, I think back in the 1880s, 1882, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was the first act to actually specifically ban An ethnic group from entering the U.S. And of course, during the Second World War, thousands of Japanese people were placed in internment camps. To what extent do those sort of dark episodes from the past continue to have an influence today, do you think?
2: I'll say this about Americans. Many Americans are incredibly ahistoric, do not have a strong historical sense, which is why It is important to put exactly the kinds of things that you mentioned, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the internment of Japanese Americans, into the textbooks, into the curriculum to remind Americans themselves of what has gone on. But, you know, because these dark episodes can tap into kind of an underlying anti-Asian racism, because they can, then I feel that they do have an influence today. It becomes part of our backdrop, whether people know it or not.
0: Right. So... Would you go as far as to say it's almost a systemic problem in American society, this anti-Asian sentiment? I mean, are we talking about something as deep-rooted as that?
2: Sure. I would say that, uh, you know, and this goes beyond the United States. Certainly, United States is the focus of our conversation today, but it goes beyond, of course, to colonialism, to yellow peril, etc. So, absolutely. I'm
0: interested in how this has played out over time, though, as well. I mean, obviously, if you're not American like myself, you grow up, you learn a lot about the civil rights movement and, and Martin Luther King and so on and so forth. You don't hear quite so much about the anti-Asian racism that's taken place in America and, and elsewhere. How come this story is not told as much, hasn't been so prominent in the historical discourse, do you think?
2: I think, you know, in the United States, when you say race, the general public automatically categorizes it as black versus white. Right. And that's why we hear so much about Martin Luther King, etc. We don't, even in the textbooks, we don't see much mention made of the internment camps, the Japanese-American internment camps. It's because of the way the race is constructed and because the African-American experience, especially rooted in slavery, is so, I guess, prominent. In people's racial imagination of the United States, that seems to take center court. But, you know, the violence of that, though, is to underestimate the other kinds of racisms that go on constantly Mm. in the United States so that the race problem is not simply just black and white, but it includes racism of all shades, if you want to put it that way. Um, And I think that's really important to have as part of our consciousness.
0: And when you're talking about Asian Americans, I guess... In a sense, at least to my knowledge, you don't have those figures like Martin Luther King or, and others that are so associated with the civil rights movement. I mean, who are the great sort of figures amongst Asian Americans who are kind of leading the community and, and leading the outrage at this kind of racism?
2: It's true. There is no Martin Luther King of the Asian American movement. And instead, I think what has happened is, uh, especially in the late 1960s and 70s, is that Asian-Americans, and this is the rise of the Asian-American movement, glommed on to the Black movement. So those became the Asian-American heroes, if you will. And that, too, is part of your earlier question about why is America's race question all about Black and white. So, you know, in some ways, the Asian-American activists have aligned themselves with the Black activists and therefore their own names are less prominent. But I would say that if anybody wants to know about Asian-American activism, they should look into the leaders of the Association for Asian-American Studies. Right. And that would be one source of looking for current leadership.
1: Yeah, you talk about the association with African-Americans. During this pandemic, during this new Black Lives Matter movement, we have seen slogans, banners, such as Yellow Paro supports Black Power. You know, this is, you know, history (laughs) sort of repeating itself again, right?
2: To a certain extent, right. You know, something like saying yellow peril, so invoking that is done ironically, of course.
1: Absolutely. You said, you know, in the Asian-American community, it seems to be leaderless, you know, when it comes to asking for civil rights. But we have seen some sort of historical incidents. For example, 1882, Andrew just mentioned the Chinese Exclusion Act. One of the prominent figures in the Chinese community, certainly, was Yong Wing, who was the first Chinese student to study in the U.S., he got his B.A. at Yale University, and in 1882, because of his ethnic origin, his citizenship was revoked. And during the Cold War, we have also seen this scientist called Chen Juesen, who was essentially, you know, expelled back to China, and he later became Chinese king of rocketry. Essentially, mm-hmm. helped China to build its, you know, uh, sort of a military rocketry. Incidents like these, are they not part of the community collective memory?
2: Very little, very little. I just want to clarify that I don't think that Asian Americans are leaderless necessarily, but the leaders do not have that kind of brand name recognition, certainly of a Martin Luther King. And whereas these kinds of these names and these incidents, and certainly leadership that you mentioned, Vincent, are important. They don't form part of the overall public knowledge of Asian-Americans. And, you know, to a certain extent, it's interesting the way that Asian-Americans have kind of fallen below the level of limelight that some of these incidences of leadership and accomplishment
1: might warrant. You know, earlier you talked about the imagination of race in the American society. I guess, you know, one of the sort of uh, perceptions of Asian Americans is these people are just doing very well. They are very quiet. They never say anything, (laughs) but, you know, they earn a lot of money, right? They are so-called a model minority. Why is this model minority myth so persistent in the U.S.?
2: Well, you know, when it was created in the 60s and it was coined model minority, I think it's important to recognize that the coinage of model minority or the concept of model minority was in part, a white ploy to acknowledge that, okay, these are the good immigrants, these are the good minorities, but by contrast, there are bad minorities. So what is the bad? What is the opposite of the model minority? So that's why Asian Americans were put forth as this kind of model to highlight how bad something like the Black minority was, by contrast. So it was that kind of contrastive power of that label. Model minority, which is part of the violence of it. It's absolutely the violence of it. It becomes the lesson for others. This is how you are supposed to behave. You are supposed to behave like these Asians. You are supposed to be quiet, achieving, and not making any trouble.
0: When we look at the current situation, Christine, you said earlier, obviously, that it seems like there is a sort of systemic issue here and a sort of undercurrent to American history almost of anti Asian racism that. Can flare up more obviously in some times than others. When you look at the current situation, do you look at it as being as bad as those past periods, the periods in the 1880s, obviously the 1940s? And, you know, could we end up seeing some kind of anti Asian or anti Chinese legislation returning to the US even? I mean, it seems far fetched, but could that happen, do you think?
2: One likes to think that it wouldn't happen, or that it shouldn't happen, and that there may be laws in place that would prevent it from happening. And yet, here's the thing about racism is that it simmers, right? Mm. It simmers oftentimes just below the surface. And when structures are in place to keep it tamped down, then okay, things are running fairly smoothly. But when leaders such as Trump now allows for some of those forces to have voice and even action the expression is to me always a possibility. And so to the question of, well, is this kind of anti-Asian legislation ever possible in the future? I would love to say no, but I can't with absolute certainty.
0: Obviously, coronavirus this year has, you know, inflamed things and it has led to the language that Trump is using. But how much of this do you think is down to the sort of tension between the US and China right now over trade and over the economic rivalry, talk of a Cold War coming back in even. I mean, it sort of is reminiscent of the 1980s when America was worried about the rise of Japan. Do you think this is more of a COVID thing or do you think this could sort of persist because that economic rivalry is clearly there in the background now?
2: I think it can persist. I mean, you know, who knows exactly what goes through Trump's head? (laughs) In allowing these kinds of things to come out of his mouth, but I, I think he's driven on impulse. And certainly, if the impulse in what is in his consciousness are the trade relations, then, as is common with many bullies, they'll pull on whatever weapons they can. And so these kinds of anti-Asian labels come flying out of his mouth. So be it. yeah um, but I think it's it's possible for it to continue certainly beyond Covid.
0: But just tying things back to what Vincent was asking about the model minority myth, is the sort of economic success sometimes of Asian (laughs) countries, does that almost create a problem uh, in the US because people from the backgrounds of those countries that are being economically successful have resentment trained against them, have some sort of jealousy?
2: You know, I'm sure there is some of that. And by that, I mean so that the current economic achievements of, for example, Asian countries, may lead to the kinds of rivalries within the United States, which can tap into the anti-Asian racism. I'm sure there's some of that. At the same time, like most immigrants, I mean, the reason why they leave the country is primarily economic. And so those immigrants who did come over, at least prior to 1965, were coming over for economic reasons. They did not come over from wealthy countries necessarily. They came because they were poor and because they needed better economic opportunities, which in this case, the United States could afford. So yes and no, certainly I think, and again, going back to the way that racism works. So whatever currently fuels the expression of racism is there. And whether it's the success of China or whether it's the success of Japan, et cetera, Mm. is there. There's a deeper history.
1: Right. But, you know, when you talk about how this modern minority perception is shaped in a society, what role did media play in portraying Asians as this modern minority? You know, these people never speak up for their own rights, (laughs) etc.
2: Yeah, media is a very interesting question as far as uh, Asian depiction goes. I mean, for one thing, Asians in decades past, were not seen in media but instead we had yellow face right and so you did not have asian actors able to portray asians at the same time you do have asians now increasingly in media baby steps baby steps and maybe some crazy rich asian steps
1: oh, yeah um, right
2: <laughs> and 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 they certainly they fuel a different kind of stereotype whether yeah. that contributes to anti asian racism is a big question what what i see in people's emotions is a kind of compartmentalization so okay crazy rich asians it makes big box office news okay parasite makes academy award but at the same time you might still want to avoid that chinese restaurant with the pandemic because you think it might be a source of contagion and right. you know you may still have verbal shunning and all this kind of thing
1: right i mean talking about crazy rich asians this is interesting because on the one hand, it is something to celebrate that the whole cast is Asians, right? But at the right. same time, the kind of a plot and the kind of a story they told was also quite stereotypical of Asians, right? Look at the best friend of the main character, you know, how her parents behaved. This is also quite stereotypical of how Asians behave in American films.
2: Sure. I mean, you know, in some ways, it's how you handle a fairy tale. And so are all white girls Cinderella's? No, not exactly. (laughs) Are all Asians crazy rich Asians? Certainly not exactly. But it's it's a fairy tale and it's a feel good. My feeling is that anything that contributes to stereotypes, as long as you take it as a stereotype, is a kind of violence to things that don't fit into that stereotype.
0: What do you mean when you say it's a violence? Can you just clarify that? You've used that phrase a couple of times.
2: Sure. Just in the sense, I say violence in the sense that it does not acknowledge the full range of Asian Mm. experience or Asian American experience. And so by not acknowledging that, it paints certain things that don't fit out of the picture. It's the same thing with the model minority myth. Um, The model Mm. minority myth excludes blue collar Asian Americans, Asian Americans who may rebel, et cetera, et cetera. So those who do not fit any stereotype become painted out of a particular kind of picture. That's the kind of violence that I mean.
0: I see. What about representation beyond culture, beyond movies, um, back into the political sphere, also in the business world? How prominent are Asian Americans in the US? Here in the UK, you know, we have a couple of people from Indian backgrounds who are now prominent politicians in the UK. But uh, do you have those sort of similar role models in the U.S., in the political or business world?
2: I mean, certainly. I think politics may lag a little bit behind, but we did have, you know, Andrew Yang running for president. And we have, from here in Hawaii, actually, more historically, from the 1950s and 1960s, we had Daniel K. Noe. We had, notably, Patsy Mink, who was a real firebrand, who lent her name to wide-reaching bills that created affirmative action legislation. So we do have those names and whether the larger public knows them is a bit in question perhaps. I I think people probably know Daniel Inouye and certainly now the Honolulu Airport has been renamed Daniel K. Inouye (laughs) International Airport, so I guess his name is indelible. But you know, I think something like Patsy Ming should really be strongly acknowledged.
1: Cristiano, president of the Association for Asian Studies. Thanks so much for joining us, Christine. So we talked about the attitudes toward Asian Americans in the U.S. and how they play out in American politics as well as society throughout history. These days, what's happening within the U.S. would also have wider political implications, especially at a time when tensions are running high between U.S. and China. So how does discrimination against the Asians in the U.S affect those who study or visit there. Let's now turn to Professor Jennifer Pan, who is a political scientist at Stanford University. Jennifer, you and your co-authors have done some really important research into the effect on Asian students' belief when they are confronted by racism on American campuses. Can you summarize to us what you have found in your recent research?
3: Sure. In a new paper, what we show is that When Chinese students in the U.S. encounter racist, anti-Chinese slurs and taunts, that boosts support for the Chinese regime. And this is among a new generation of students who are actually most likely to subscribe to democratic values.
1: That's very interesting. But you only study the Chinese students, but what about other Asian students, for example, those from South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, or anywhere from Asia?
3: So the research that we do is focused on the effect of racism and anti-Chinese rhetoric in particular on Chinese students' views. So my particular project, we can't speak to the broader impacts on other foreign students as well as Asian Americans.
0: So there's often an assumption, I guess, that students who come from non-democratic countries to study in countries like the U.S. are going to take on more democratic views. So can you explain the dynamics that are changing opinions as, as you found in your research?
3: So one thing I would say is that there is an assumption students who come to places like the U.S. from non-democratic countries will take on democratic values. But I think in the past few years, that assumption has been challenged, especially with respect to Chinese students. And mm. there's emerging thinking that Chinese students come to the U.S. and the West, Australia, other countries, strongly indoctrinated to be nationalistic and strongly supportive of the Chinese regime against all criticism. And that as a result of that previous indoctrination, they do not take on democratic views. But what we find in our study is that actually, Chinese students who come to the United States are much more predisposed to support liberal democracy than their peers at top universities in China. In addition, they're not particularly nationalistic. But when these students are exposed to xenophobic racist comments, that's when they start to increase their support for China's current political system.
0: Can you explain just a little how you went about this research, how you based these findings?
3: Yeah, in the fall of last year, 2019, we recruited hundreds of first-year undergraduate Chinese students across universities in the U.S. These are students who didn't go to high school in the U.S., so they're coming to live in the United States for the first time for college. Uh, We recruited them to participate in a longitudinal study, And in addition, we also, for comparison, recruited hundreds of first-year students at top universities in China. And this particular research on xenophobic discrimination is based on a survey we conducted among these students in the spring of this year.
0: And so how exactly did the research work? You gave them examples of sort of anti-Asian comments or anti-Chinese comments and saw how it changed their attitudes. Just give us a little bit more detail on how exactly it worked.
3: Yeah, so in the survey, uh, we have an experiment where we randomly assign our respondents into three groups. So we have these three groups. One group, which we call the control group, read a Chinese news article about Mm. COVID in China and then saw 10 comments from Chinese social media that were critical of the Chinese government's handling of COVID. That's the first group. The second group, which we call Treatment A, they read a U.S. media report on COVID in China and then saw 10 comments from U.S. social media platforms critical of the Chinese government's handling of COVID. Mm -hmm. That's treatment A. Then the third group read the same news article in English, American news article about COVID in China. But then they read 10 social media comments, among which five were critical of the Chinese government and five contained racially derogatory comments about Chinese people and the role of Chinese people in spreading COVID.
0: And so having shown them these statements, you measured their response in some way?
3: That's right. After giving them these treatments, we asked all the respondents the same questions. We asked them first, how do they feel after reading these news reports and comments? Second, they were given a chance to say something in an open-ended response to the people who made these comments privately. And then we asked them a series of questions about their opinions of China's political system and whether right. changes needed to be made in China's political system.
1: I wondered, anecdotally, since the COVID outbreak started in the U.S. and Europe, I have actually heard quite a lot of Asian students in both the U.K. and the U.S. came to admire the way their governments handle coronavirus pandemic. Some even concluded that perhaps China's system is a much better one in tackling a health crisis like this. And the U.S. arguably is not doing very well on that front. Is this something that has also evolved after you finish your study?
3: So one thing I should say is that in our survey, we also asked the respondents for their evaluations of how different countries have handled COVID-19, including China, the United States, as well as other countries like Japan or South Korea. What we find is that overwhelmingly, so 89% of our respondents think that the Chinese government has handled COVID well or very well, whereas 89% of respondents think that the U.S. government has handled COVID badly or very badly. So we do observe this big divergence in evaluations of how different governments have handled COVID. What we're interested in is beyond that, so despite Mm -hmm. that evaluation, how do these students think about the necessity of political change or changes to China's political system? And there, that's when we find if they see racist comments, they're much less likely to say that China's political system needs Mm -hmm. change.
0: Because I think you found in your research that even if Chinese students believe that the Chinese government has handled COVID better than the U.S. government, for example, which they clearly did, It's not that that's making them more disposed towards the Chinese regime or authoritarian regimes. Is that fair comment?
3: I think that is a fair comment. The other thing to keep in mind is that in the early days of COVID, when it was confined mostly to China, there was still a lot of domestic discontent about how the government was handling the epidemic, especially in the early days. right, mm. And that highlighted for many people the need for changes within China. But racist comments decrease our respondents' thinking along those lines.
0: Can you hazard a guess as to why this is? Is it fundamental human nature that essentially, if you're rude about my family, even if I don't get on with my family, if another person is rude about them, then I will feel defensive about my family? Is that the sort of instinct that's at play here, do you think?
3: So there's been a lot of research on discrimination and immigrant assimilation, and also a lot of research on discrimination and its psychological impacts. So consistently that research has shown that exposure to discrimination or perceptions of discrimination has tangible impacts on not only your feelings, but your physiological response like blood pressure cortisol mm. etc the more social science research has shown that there is often a response to protect oneself against that psychological distress which is to retreat to one's own identity and away from the identity and the values of the group that one perceives one is being attacked
1: by so what is the political implications of your research? By that I mean, what does that say about the Trump administration's handling of international students? I mean, on the one hand, they complain about Chinese students not being able to assimilate into American culture or American society. But on the other hand, they are arguably making Chinese students very uncomfortable. So what is the political and policy implications of all your research findings?
3: I think one implication is that when President Trump uses racist phrases to refer to the coronavirus, he's playing to his base. You know, I've seen reports that when he uses these terms at campaign rallies, the crowd loves it. So the use of this kind of xenophobic rhetoric vilifying China and Chinese people appeals to Trump's base. But this type of rhetoric, what we show is that it may also be a boon or a gift to China or the Chinese regime.
0: When you were doing this research, and I know this obviously wasn't the main thrust of the research, but how big a problem did you get the sense that this is, that racism towards Asians in American society is turning Asian students against the U.S. in some way? How big a problem did you find this to be?
3: We aren't able to quantify that through the survey that we did, but I will say that one of the motives that drove us to do this particular study, and the reasons why we were asking questions related to this sort of xenophobic rhetoric and Mm. racism, is that among the co-authors, myself and other co-authors working on this paper, we have been increasingly experiencing this type of treatment, and we've been hearing about it more and more from the students that we teach and that we work with.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer. Thank you, Christine, as well. Both guests giving terrific insights to this important topic. Thank you to Vincent, of course, my co-host today. Thank you to Jason Lee, who's producing this episode. Thank you also to Alex Lestrange, who composed the music for the Asia Matters podcast. You can please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. We're on email at asiamatterspod at gmail.com. And on Twitter, we're at at asiamatterspod. Do tune in next time. We've got loads of good stuff coming out over the summer. And we look forward
2: to you listening to more episodes. Thank you.